Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. There still wasn't that kind of flea bag character now. I mean, you're not allowed to be that if you're a woman of colour, really. That person still doesn't exist. So I was like, yeah, I'll do it. I'll write the embarrassing story about the girl and the bad one night stand. I'll do it. No one's ever going to read it. It's going to be really fun. Anyway, long story short, the book actually ended up doing really, 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 really well. Hello and welcome to the Wannabe podcast, a behind the scenes look at the opportunities available in the creative and entertainment industries so you can get to where you want to be in 30 minutes or less. I am of course your host Imriel Morgan. Shout out to you for listening to last week's episode with the incredible Jamelia Donaldson. She's truly remarkable, you should be following her and if you're not, go and follow her. Today's guest is Coco Khan. Coco is a journalist and an incredibly talented writer. She's the commissioning editor for The Guardian B2B, as well as being a columnist for The Guardian Weekend. Coco has also contributed to two hugely successful books, The Good Immigrant, edited by Nikesh Shukla, and Not About the Burka, edited by Mariam Khan. In today's episode, we talk about how Coco became a successful journalist. We touch on representation and why it's sometimes tokenistic. Coco shares how she was able to develop her writing style and develop a confident voice. We touch on how external validation can be normal and healthy as a motivator. Let's dive in. Who did you want to be before you became who you are today and why? Over the years, I've become very frustrated with the discussion about representation. I think it's become quite empty and tokenistic. I think that there's no point having representation unless it actually means something. It can't just be a brown face playing the role of your standard white dude. Oh, Rishi Sunak, perfect example. Sadhu Javid, perfect example. I didn't know what models there were. And it was a reminder to me that that actually mm. is important. And even if I've been frustrated by it, it is still such a central thing. So the first person I wanted to be was a doctor. Obviously, duh, I'm Asian. That's what we do. We become doctors. Um, yep. And actually, funnily <laughs> enough, I did work experience in a hospital and I remember some they were doing a blood test or something like that and I was just following someone around and I fainted at the blood test and then later the, oh, wow. whoever it was said to my mum like with the greatest respect Mrs Khan if she faints at blood she cannot work in the medical industry and it was just like oh, <laughs> bolt from the blue after that I started becoming a lot more interested in politics and I think actually, in retrospect, a lot of that was the influence of my older brother. At the time, he was in university. He got very interested in student politics. So I started, you know, becoming more interested in that sort of stuff. 
And I think back now, and I think that was once again, another example of me trying to be what I thought someone else thought I should be. So I never really properly mm. pursued it. But I would say things anecdotally like, one day I'll be an MP, but did absolutely nothing to kind of make that happen. Then, right. <laughs> yeah, so it was obviously a very hollow thing. Then after that, I was uh, interested in law, which I suppose was like an extension of politics. You know, the nature of law is that like, the idea I had of it was very much American TV court cases where someone goes into a room and, and begs people to do mm-hmm. the right thing. And I thought, oh, I want to do that. I care about stuff. I care about the little guy. I care about, you know, miscarriages of justice. And I grew up with, obviously, the case of Stephen Lawrence was had a really profound impact on everyone. And his lawyer was this guy called Imran Khan. Obviously, I'm a Khan. So at that time, I was like noticed every Khan. And I thought he was a really inspirational person um yeah you know I, i'm a big believer in kind of solidarity and he was a perfect example of someone doing that and i thought oh i'm going to become him so then i took law a level and during a levels they told us as part of the course you had to learn about the different routes into the legal profession and all the different things you could be and i just remember this crushing class where i found out that in the uk those american lawyers don't exist you can't speak in court the only people that can speak in court are barristers everyone else is going to be a solicitor. The people that speak in court are normally Oxbridge educated, are normally from a certain background. And I just knew, like, even though I I had great ambitions and education was a very big part of my family life, like I still, I grew up in a council house, we claimed benefits, it was single parent family. Like, you know, I was like, I'm not them, I can't be them. So all throughout, I was just being, trying to be things I was told to be based on the models that were around and then slowly but surely realizing that none of those models were for me anyway. They were someone else's ambition. They were someone else's kind of template. But I know when I realized that I wanted to be me and that was about sort of five years ago. And that's such a sad thing to say that I was well past 25 when I realized that who I want to be is to write and be a writer and felt comfortable with that and stopped feeling ashamed that it wasn't a real job and that I wouldn't make enough money to help out my family and all that sort of stuff. That was the moment. So yeah, it's been quite a recent journey for me. Wow, that's truly remarkable. We had weirdly similar parallels because I also wanted to be in medicine. Oh, Um, really? I also did work experience in a hospital. Oh my God. Um, But yeah, I guess what I'm curious to know is when you came to the realization that you wanted to be a writer, even though that was quite recent, how much had writing featured in your life? And at what point did you know that you were good enough to be a writer? I knew that I wanted to write for a while. Well, at least I knew that it was a passion of mine and that I could do it well. And people said that it was good, but I never took it seriously as a thing that I could be as a whole thing. Uh, for ages I just assumed it was a good vehicle to get into other things that mattered politics law things you mm-hmm. wear blazers to and that your aunties are boastful about to their friends but then when I started doing I think it was probably around the same period of time so I'd always had an interest in culture I always thought that um, culture mattered and I'm by culture I mean like popular culture film tv music that sort of stuff I always thought that it mattered but even then I still had that internal thing where I'm like it's not real it's not proper it's it's not real but I was always really passionate about it so Mm -hmm. when I came out of university I got a job at a publishing house that did trade magazines so this trade magazine I basically really needed a job and so when I was (laughs) at university I decided that like maybe journalism was something that I could use my writing skills but also do stuff that kind of eventually mattered because 
ideas, persuading people. That was the heart of the stuff I was attracted to when I was younger, making the world a better place. And so I was coming round to the idea that you could do that through journalism. You could persuade, you could present new ideas, you could make things better, even if it's not so at the sharp end of it, where you're literally in the office stamping the document that makes a change, you can create change the culture a little bit. And I managed to get myself a really crap job at a trade publisher. And that publisher, basically, I don't know if you ever watch Have I Got News For You, but in those little clips at the end where they're like, and today's headline comes from like Duck Keeper Quarterly or something like that. I I was making those, <laughs> that was my job. I made oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So I did that for about three years. So I just needed the money so desperately. And I, want, and I was like, it's close enough isn't it it's sort of journalism it's kind of journalism yeah it's fine it's fine it's fine no give me enough money to move out of my mum's house and have my own room and in that room I can continue my party lifestyle and read my books so I'm still very much living a kind of extended university existence in those few years but during that time I at least had the foresight to start writing on subjects that I cared about and started writing about like culture so like art design music things like that eventually it got to a point where I'd had enough bylines and I knew enough people in it that I could sort of leave the glamorous world of uh, barbecue express weekly and go to (laughs) and pursue journalism so at that point I joined a magazine called complex which is the um, yeah yeah, you yeah you'll know it it's like that uh, from America and they've launched an office in the UK that was my first kind of journalistic staff job previous to that it was always journalism in addition to something else that I might have been doing that kind of paid the bills and then when I was there I was kind of a lot more immersed in the world of like culture journalism and what you can do also I was quite lucky that the timing of being in that job there was a change that was going on in society where like the pillars of culture what we considered as being the best culture which was very kind of austere very white very middle class was being pulled down slowly people were becoming more interested in music from outside of that world from culture and Mm. and books from outside of that world so I happened to be in just like quite a good place at that time where we were always covering the most interesting stuff that was going on and I was part of that equally people were getting more and more interested in identity politics and things that mattered and seeing the world through a new dimension which is not just those who have power telling you how to see it but seeing it through other angles and as part of my role in that job I was like commissioning personal essays commissioning comment pieces so I was in the right place at the right time during a massive amount of social change and that's when I decided to do The Good Immigrant. So that was a book that me and... Oh, yeah, I have that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, like, me... Nikesh Shukla edited. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So Nikesh, I met through uh, Twitter, because that's how we all meet, is through Twitter. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and he had... I'd commissioned him a couple of times to do some bits for Complex, just to write about, like, you know, music that he really liked or books that he really liked. And so then when he was deciding to do this this project, The Good Immigrant, he was very upfront about it. And he was like, you know, at the time, it was pre the EU referendum, but all those sentiments, anti-immigration sentiments, the dog whistle racism Mm. was out in force, and everybody knew it was happening. And that generational divide between like us, the urban young and them, the kind of, you know, home counties, Henry's was getting bigger and bigger and bigger, becoming more fraught. And Nikesh being from the book publishing industry was like, you know, book publishing industry is an extension of that Hooray Henry stuff. I really want to make a little difference in that. That's my world. And do you want to help me? So I remembered Mm. that like when I was at university and all those amazing books that I read that I loved and I'd always had in the sort of a little thing that I oppressed inside that I was like one day I too will write a piece of fiction one day. And so when it came up when he was like, do you want to do it? 
I just thought to myself, I've got nothing to lose here. Nikesh was really upfront about it. He was like, I don't think this is going to make any money. I won't be surprised if anyone even publishes it, but it's a thing that I want to do. And even if we just publish it online. So I was like, ah, fuck it. No one is going to read this ever. No one's going to see it. So I started a little blog on Tumblr during that time. It's, this is As soon as I'm saying this story, it sounds very <laughs> of its time, isn't it? It was on Tumblr. It was really big on this Tumblr. This is such a millennial story. But basically, I like, <laughs> I had, of course you had a Tumblr, yeah. Of course, of course. There was <laughs> Who did so it? many great gifts on there. Um, I started this Tumblr and it was called Brown Around Town because I'm brown and I was around town. And it was a comedy blog about a girl, me, who uh, was basically experiencing things for the first time because I grew up in this weirdly conservative home. I lost my virginity really late. I didn't start drinking till late by like whatever Western standards, I think by Asian standards. I'm wow, mad. But like, and I was just documenting (laughs) this experience of what it was to be this sort of, you know, almost like in America, you'd call it like the college educated dropout, that sort of thing was that that kind of like, you know, academically okay, but still kind of middling, like, you know, bit of an outsider, that sort of thing. And so I just documented this. And it was all about like my kind of journeys to try and find a boyfriend that like, didn't make me feel bad, or like didn't fetishize me or like, was accepting of the books that I read, whilst also like, being a bit of a nut job and not turning up for work and like being erratic and all this sort of stuff that kind of complex woman that's become very popular now I was trying to do that I think and I I, like that makes it sound like I was trying to do some artistic thing I honestly just was too broke for therapy and it was my therapy um fair enough so I did that anyway (laughs) the blog got got really big um and at one point I even got approached to do like a book deal for it and I just had this moment of just sheer dread where I thought I cannot cannot let anyone know that this is my life I can't let my family see that I can't let any of my friends see that what my friends from school from home I just can't do it it's too embarrassing I'm too embarrassed and I shut the blog down because I'd realized it was getting to a point where it might start bleeding into other parts of my life so I just locked it off and that was the end of it hi I'm Daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. so I created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So when, fast forward five years later, I think it was, Nikesh came around and was like, is there anything you've ever really wanted to write? I remembered that blog and how much joy it gave me and how I didn't have that outlet anymore and how actually in that time, those five years, nothing had really changed. There still wasn't that kind of fleabag character now. I mean, you're not allowed to be that if you're a woman of Mm. colour, really. That person still doesn't exist. So I was like, yeah, I'll do it. I'll write the embarrassing story about the girl and the bad one night stand. I'll do it. No one's ever going to read it. It's going to be really fun. Anyway, long story short, the book actually ended up doing really, 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 really well. Took off. <laughs> yeah. 
um yeah and then then suddenly i was like getting you know there were like reviews of my work in like the economist and things like that being like coco khan's ditty about being a young i was like what the what it was i didn't expect it at all (laughs) came out of nowhere and then suddenly there were all these articles written saying that oh this person's got a really good voice they're a really good writer they should pursue things sort of whatever that's when I knew that I was like actually maybe maybe I can do this writing thing maybe I am good enough and I needed the world to sort of tell me that and I needed to find a way to get in front of the world almost accidentally because I would have never pushed myself Mm. and it was all very lucky and it was all yeah the universe basically tread that path for me opened up that path for me to walk um so it was really long I apologize (laughs) you know what in fairness though I had like written down three different questions but you answered all of them so right (laughs) it kind of worked out actually because I was going to ask about the confidence in developing your voice but it sounds like you know a a little bit of that or a lot of that may have come from the external validation from the good immigrant or would you not say it was so it was definitely external validation and people saying actually you've you've got something you're good and do you think that still drives you now I mean I would be lying if I didn't say that external validation doesn't I wouldn't say drive me because that sounds really bad (laughs) that sounds really lame um (laughs) but I, I would be it would be lying to say that it's not a big factor in giving me the confidence to keep things going Definitely. Mm-hmm. Because you, you you have moments all the time where you think like, why am I doing this? This is so lame. And w- what difference does it make? This is such navel gazing bollocks. Who really cares about a short story about someone who's I'm working on a short story in the minute about like, some millennial character who like, uh, it's sort of like loosely based on me, but it's not it's, it's based on a, a fake person that's like more interesting than me. But um, I grew up in <laughs> East London. And obviously East London's changed a lot and it's become like heavily gentrified and I um, I've been recently trying at some point my dream is to one day own a property because you know property was such a big thing for us growing up you know being in social housing you're always in the you're always at the victimization of someone else if a neighbor doesn't like you or for whatever reason or they think you're doing something wrong or you live different to them or you look different to them they'll literally phone up the council and try and get you evicted and they own their houses and the council will listen and so it's always a sort of very vulnerable situation so my big dream in life is to one day own so I started recently looking going and doing visits to flats you know to sort of buy and there's this such a funny moment because you go into this house and normally it will be in the areas that I'm looking at normally I'll open the door and it'll be someone that looks like me it'll be in so probably an Asian family South Asian family maybe Muslim maybe not and they probably bought it way back when uh when you could actually afford homes and like nobody wanted to live in these areas and I had, there's a moment where I think, oh God, I'm gonna, they're gonna give it to me because I'm one of them in it, you know, for the people. But then someone will come up behind me being like, oh, hello, hi, yeah, yeah, I'm Max, this is Letty, hey, yeah. And you just know they've got more money than you, more, and you, this is this uh, frustrating thing. Anyway, so I'm writing a sort of weird, surreal story about like, uh, all set in like gentrified East London and all the different characters you meet and the sort of competitiveness that goes a bit too far and it ends up being a bit of a bloodbath. Anyway. I have moments where <laughs> I look at that and I'm like, this has taken me a really long time. <laughs> and in that time that I've written this, I could have maybe made some real actual money. <laughs> I could have maybe done, done something <laughs> that was important to somebody else immediately, you know, and I feel ashamed. And so it is that external validation. It is those little periodical little emails you get from someone saying, oh, you know, seeing you write makes me think I can write too. 
I think, oh, actually. Oh, that's good. Well, that is good, although uh, the way I made it sound there didn't sound so flattering. That sounded a little bit like, if she can do it, well, anyone can. I can do it too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in those things... I'm sure that's not how they meant it, yeah. <laughs> I hope not. That'd be a really subtle par, isn't it? That's a bit of stroke yeah. of genius, really. <laughs> um, no, I, I'm quite intrigued about this short story, actually, because I'm... I think there's just a real lack of other experiences um, in the ether that we just need to hear, see and experience, especially in the current climate where everything's just a bit shit. Mm. Is it funny? Is oh, it yeah, as funny yeah, yeah. as this conversation's been? Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Literally, I, I like I have a, I'm slightly obsessed with uh, I I'm going to get on my soapbox. Are you ready? I'm climbing up. I'm on the soapbox. Here I go. Um, I just think that like. <laughs> So much of the experience of like, I mean, obviously you can't generalise, everyone's communities are different, but so I'll just speak about my own experience. My own experience as a British South Asian from a Muslim background living in these sort of areas. It is actually quite jokes. There are a number of jokes all the time. There's a lots of like <laughs> characters and like bullshit people, even the most like, you know, the kind of vision that we have, I think, of like quite religious women is that they're like under the thumb. And to some extent, there is some truth in that. But they're also like little dictators and tyrants that run their own empires in their own way and use soft power and they can be quite Machiavellian and it's all very interesting. And so like one of the things that I'm so obsessed with is like how do we create humour and lightness and show that the experience isn't... Yes, it is institutional racism that exists. Yes, it is often poverty, CVs getting chucked in the bin, having to work twice as hard. That's all true. But it's also loads of joy and fun and humour and beauty. And how do we share those stories as well? It can't be that humour, beauty and fun is a white thing. It can't be that only they get to make you laugh, that only they get to make you sort of tittle. Like, that's not fair. So... I, I'm really obsessed with getting more humorous voices out there and pretty much exclusively anything I will write is humor for that reason. Brilliant. Sounds amazing. I just want to know, actually, what is challenging you now? Because I guess you've, you've been at this five plus years kind of like with the confidence and developing your voice and actually being very confident in your opinions. You're really opinionated. You have a strong point of view. And... I think that's what I've always really liked about following you on Twitter is just that you just have a very strong sense of self and a strong point of view and you're very confident in expressing that. Um, but are there anything, is there anything that challenges you? Well, I mean, the first thing I'll say is that is very kind of you to say because I would say that for every tweet I post, I've probably deleted one as well. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, like I, I like to think that I have strong opinions and that they're well informed but I also I mean like many of us have doubt and self-doubt and have moments where I think maybe I am wrong and I don't quite know so confidence is an illusion in many ways and I think admitting that is one of the best things I ever did uh, was sort of recognizing that it, it can be both you can be strong and also not have no idea what you're doing you can be um vulnerable and also be dynamic I think that was a really good thing to have done yeah so final question what is the best advice you've ever received and what is the worst advice you've ever received uh the best piece of advice I've ever received is uh gosh I mean most of it sort of points to the same thing so it'll be like different shades of the same thing which kind of amounts to like you know don't preempt what people will think so like one of the things that I is a problem for me and I'm sure a problem for lots of um 
writers and creatives of many ways is the sort of self-editing so like i'll give you an example one Mm. of my last short stories that came out was in a collection of stories from muslim women and i grew up in a muslim household but we're not like very very religious and as i've just explained to you at length i lived a sort of very um i guess you would say irreligious life in my younger years and i'm very aware of that and that can cause sort of tensions and frictions and things like that so when i was writing the short story because i knew that it was really important that um the audience, most likely the audience of people who were going to be reading that book were going to be young, probably Muslim background women, most likely, that they wanted to hear the stories of people that made them feel happy and seen and, you know, uh, that they exist. And so I kept editing myself to become this better Muslim than I actually am. I kept editing myself to be less imperfect, less flawed, less messed up. And eventually it got to the point where I was reading it back and being like, who is this person? I don't even know who this person is. Like, I just, it's so weird. And one of my editors at the time was just like, you cannot keep preempting what you think people are going to read or understand. As soon as you start self-censoring, A, the bigger censors, the society that censored you in the first place has one. And two, like, mm. uh, it just makes for really crap work, mate. <laughs> so I think that has been a lesson that has stayed with me for the like last few years. And I always think about that whenever I write things. I think I'll read it back and go, okay, was I writing this for someone? Who was I writing it for? Why was I writing it for them? And how much can I go back and now write it for me? So that was really good advice. The worst advice I've ever received was that to not worry about money if you pursue a creative career. That was the stupidest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) I mean, just genuinely. I actually just registered what you said in my head as well. I'm like, (laughs) carry on. (laughs) Someone told me that. Like, because I mean, I mean, actually, I wouldn't even say someone told me that. I still get that fairly regularly. You'll explain to someone, the amount of times I'll chat to someone and they'll be like, how come you haven't written your novel yet then? You're always talking about writing a novel. But then I always explain like, do you know how long it takes to write a novel? It takes like at least, (laughs) at least a year, right? And that's probably in my evenings and in my weekends and I'm tired or I have to take time off work or quit my job in order to facilitate it. And I am scared of doing that in this economy. Are you talking, what are you talking about? And so, yeah, and you you get this, this, kind of trope that goes on that if you're like a real artist you must create it you know it doesn't matter about money it's just you and your daily bread and art it's just a load of bollocks in it like uh it's completely (laughs) (laughs) it's complete like it's just of course worry about money if you're being if you need to have a creative career of course of course like be sensible and it's totally fine to put things on pause or do things, you know, in your own time. It's okay. There's no rush. It doesn't make you less of a creative if you say, I can't do that right now because I've got a prioritosis. It doesn't make you less of a great writer or poet or singer. It just makes you real. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Coco. This was so much fun. I had so much fun recording with Coco on this episode. She's an absolute blast. If you're now as enamoured with her as I am, you definitely need to check out her work in The Good Immigrant and It's Not About the Worker. And absolutely go and follow her at Coco by Name on Twitter. For updates on Wannabe, follow Content is Queen on Twitter at Content is QN and Instagram at Content is Queen HQ. If you're enjoying this podcast, please do leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends via your Insta stories and tweets too. We've pulled some amazing quotes from the episode, which you can reshare via Instagram and Twitter. 
To get extended show notes listing any of the tools and resources we've talked about on this episode, visit wannabepodcast.com. This podcast is proudly a content is cream production. Much love as always to my talented producer, Ellie Clifford. And thank you for listening. Until next time, bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.